The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hello, hello, hello. Remember me? I'm back. Yes, they've let me back on Spin the Rally Pod for episode 195. Yes, we are five away from our double century and they said it would never last. We are joined today by, yeah, most of the usual crew. We have the fabulous George Donaldson. Good morning, George. Good morning, Lisa. We have Colin Clark tucked away in Stafford, Cestershire. Hello, Colin. Well, we don't Hello? know Colin, it turns out. <laughs> oh, good morning. Yes, no, you've popped back in again. Good morning, everyone. Very sorry. Good morning. I was about to say, is your mic working? But um... Mike is working well. Uh, internet seemed to just give up on me for a second there. Good morning, everyone. Well, there you go. We were all hanging on your every word. But uh, yeah, anyway. and of course we have editor of Dirtfish.com, Mr. Luke Barry. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning, George. Good morning, Colin. Good morning, Lisa and listeners. And um, yeah, and a, and a, well, I'm just going to say it's an August morning, really. I don't really want to talk about the weather anymore. It doesn't seem to have any kind of consistency. It doesn't seem to follow any kind of seasonal pattern anymore. Um, the only time we're going to talk about weather, I've decided, is when we're talking about an event and it has some effect on the roads. Now, I'm going to lay out what we're doing for this episode. We have unfinished business with Finland I mean, let's face it, we could talk about Finland for podcasts on end, but George has some thoughts which we will come to about um, the fabulous Rally Finland, which uh, was done and dusted last weekend. But this was um, a, a discussion that came up in our very expansive production meeting that perhaps it might be a good opportunity for us all to discuss quite how we got bitten by the bug that is rallying. And I think that's an excellent suggestion and as a result, Mr. Luke Barry, I'm going to ask you to tell us your story first, because, to be honest, Colin, George and I may have waffled on about this in the past. We can dig deeper. But Luke, your story is the most interesting, especially as you're the most recent driver amongst us as well. Oh, don't do that to me. Don't make my head go big on a Monday morning, Lisa. <laughs> don't do that. Um, my story is definitely not the most interesting, so I'm a bit surprised you've come to me first. But you know what? We'll take it in, in this scenario. But I feel a little bit bad, actually, dear listener, that we don't have David Evans on here as well. At one point, we will need to get him to share his tale. I feel a little bit like a fraud coming in here. Shall I just go on a bit of a, a monologue, Lisa? I know this was my idea, Let's but I didn't it. actually think about it in practice. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I've chucked you under the bus. Appreciate it. Um, so, generally speaking, for people that know me, I apologise. You've heard all this before. For those that don't, I'm going to start mentioning a rally called the Jim Clark a lot, which... It's becoming a little bit too synonymous to me. I need to sort of remember I'm a journalist and I'm not meant to be biased towards any event, but I do have a massive soft spot for it. But for those that aren't aware, it's a closed road tarmac rally in the south of Scotland, which is held in the area where I grew up. And ironically, the first year, well, it used to be a forest event for years, but the first year it was held on tarmac was the year which I was born. So there's a little bit of a history here. 
Um, and as I said on previous podcasts, I am ironically the same age as the World Rally Car. So these are quite feverish stats for a rally boy like me. But you can make any connection if you want to, um, which I have done, of course. Um, but <laughs> when I was young, my parents were... They were never involved actively in motorsport. They were always fans of motorsport. My mum had been to the odd RAC, I'm sure, like running around the country chasing stuff. She didn't really know what it was at the time. But when there was so many stages around, so many cars parked at Randall at night next to Forest, you think she got a bit intrigued and went along herself to see what it was about. My dad was always into cars, but never so much live motorsport but this was at a time when obviously the late 90s mccray and burns were were coming through so in the uk where i'm from there was a lot of terrestrial tv coverage at that time george donaldson was one of the key members of the service park so i still find it quite bizarre that i have george donaldson's phone number and we occasionally have conversations even on spin the rally pod so george there's a shout out for you and um, i still get a little bit starstruck by you look you avoid my you calls that, like the plague um, you avoid my calls <laughs> like the plague luke George, I do mm-hmm. apologise. You always seem to call me when I'm at maximum busyness. It's like a skill, but anyway, it's not good enough. I apologise. Yeah, thinking about it, George, in in '97, were, were you were around in the WRC then? Were Toyota coming back with the? I can't remember which year it was. The Corolla yeah. sort of yeah, reappeared. '97 that we came back with the Corolla. I was team manager, so I had a lovely t- uh, 1996. Uh, in, in effectively a, a band, we we'd lost our um, our entrance license, so we entered everything under uh, Marlboro um, or. Toyota Belgium or Toyota Australia or wherever it was we were uh, under under their entrance licenses, but we still did a lot of rallies and we had uh, we had uh, still yeah we still had Uha at that point so um, we had we had a good time and in '97 we came back with the Corolla exactly good so my memory isn't completely failing me which is good we'll mm. take that um just about um but yeah '97. I was then obviously born in the summer as a twin. There was two of me, which is a bit of a frightening thought for the world. Um, but because my f- parents were also Formula One fans, a, a quick sort of side story, and sorry, it's roundy roundy related, but Hayden would get dressed in red and I would get dressed in blue. Obviously, just a, you have to have your colour. You're a twin. <laughs> you have things to <laughs> differentiate yourself. So as a result, he often got referred to as Schumacher and I was Villeneuve. And I'll take the story because Villeneuve came out on top. So... I see that. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that, should I? In case Hayden's listening. Sorry, Hayden. You're always the top between us. Um, so, um, <laughs> Sibling, Siblings are fair game. Well, that's true. That is true. Um, yep. So for me, it was I was never like born into a motorsport family as such, but there were connections around it, I guess. Um, the first live rally experience I remember having, I think, was the year 2000. I'm pretty sure I'd been to the Jim Clark rally before that as a child in the pram just because my parents wanted to watch it and didn't have a babysitter but I'd be lying if I said I could remember it which is a shame because this was for me when the rally was probably at its peak with all the Seat sponsorship and all the Formula 2 kit cars and stuff so my earliest memories to be fair are of that year but the very end of it so it's a very niche one I actually referred to it on an article in Dirtfish last week my hero from day one was Tapio Laukinen, Finnish champion, oh. British champion in 99. Yeah, Tapio was, was my guy. That's, that's he was, odd he, because, Luke, one of the first guys that I actually came across in rallying was also Tapio Laukinen. How odd is that? And do you know what? Can we do it, a, a Tapio Laukinen special? Well, it was just a name I loved. It was a name I loved. And I, I remember I used to drive up and down the road to work and it was a two and a half hour drive listening to Radio 5 Live. And in the days that they used to report on the British Championship, 
I used to hear this name being mentioned occasionally. I just loved the name. It just kind of rolls off your tongue. It's a sing-song name. That was the only interest I had in rallying in 2001. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good name, though. Exotic name. It is a good name. As you say, Tapio in itself is cool, but Laukinen just follows it perfectly, doesn't it? There's something very rhythmic about it. Um, so, yeah, he was my early hero. Um, at that point, he was driving a, a Golf, which was blue with its distinctive green wheels. So I think maybe as a child, that's quite an interesting colour combination. But I swear down, I was terrified of these cars. Like, I loved seeing them, but the noise, and they were quite loud rally cars anyway. But anything, I'd be sitting there with my little headphones on, screaming, because I just couldn't deal with the noise. Yet I still wanted to be there. Um, a bit of a weird juxtaposition, that. But I knew I should be loving it, but I just... One of those kids, huh? <laughs> I was one of those kids. <laughs> yeah, I, I just couldn't deal with the loud noise. But this sort of kick-started a slight obsession with rallying, and it probably took me a few years later to work out that this was sort of something that not everybody was into, if that makes sense. Like, for me, it was normal. We had a rally every year, so we'd go and watch it. Um, and if you're down in that area, I think even if you don't want to get involved in a rally that comes through your, your closed roads, you kind of have to. Even if you're not going to watch it, your weekend is affected by it because roads are closed or whatever. So we always took the, and we were interested in road sport anyway, but we always took the approach of, well, it's here. Let's enjoy this entertainment that's come to our front door. And literally some years it did come past our front door, which is a bit mental for me this year when I actually did the rally, but we're not going to get into that. Um, not yet anyway. Um, so yeah, I spent pretty much my entire childhood being obsessed with rallying every year it was going to watch the jimmy clark i was then starting to watch the the world championship on the tv and weirdly for a scotsman it wasn't mccray it so that was, would have been on channel four in the uk was it then you're testing my memory to be fair it could have been channel four, think, okay. channel four yeah, was, was, was saturday was, nights wasn't they, it they, they, they started really selling yeah. it it was it was great to watch i'm all i remember is yeah the, the coverage had robbie head on it yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and who else? I couldn't even. John Desborough, I think, was one of the commentators. John Desborough, yeah. yeah. So these, these, these people and these voices are all just. Yes. Yes. Hey, these are all and iconic in my head. There's one other journalist. Help me out, Lisa. What's his name? Writes for The Guardian, I uh, think. Uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Hart. Jeremy, Jeremy Hart. Jeremy Hart. Yeah. There they are. So these lads, and, and Mark James, who's from the BBC beforehand, these are all voices that are. I think iconic to everybody, but for me, they're like voices of my childhood, which is weird. But for me, or as our family, I guess, we weren't McRae fans, which you might expect given our nationality. We were instead Solberg fans. So Petter was always the one that we supported in the WRC. So 2003 Rally GB, I remember it distinctly watching that stage live on television. And my mum in particular was very excited. She had a, a soft spot for Petter, definitely. And I think my dad was a little bit not so happy about this soft spot for better but i i always um yeah it was just something about i think everybody can relate to this with solberg it was something about his style his passion and we're, we're a subaru family as well we had a couple like, impresses yeah. so that was an obvious link and but the controversial story with this is i turned down the chance to actually go to that event because of my fear of rally cars and, and the noise my parents were desperate to go and i said nah i, I don't want to and i was six at the time and I still... That's, this is the end of your story now. I was going to say, it. I hate myself for this. Colin, it's your turn now. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, no, I was going to say, the night, the, the kind oh. of synchro, synchronotic, synchrony, synchronous yeah. link, um, uh, that was my first event. Oh, was it? That very, that very event was my first event. Wow. 
which was very very bizarre so i should yeah, i, I should i should have jo- i should have joined you lisa but apparently i was too scared and yeah we could we could have we could have crossed paths in the night i was there as well <laughs> lisa and i think uh yes it was my first rally gb with with uh, 555 with bat there we go it's a first for a lot of us there we go Weird. What were you doing in that one, George? Two thousand and three. Uh, I was uh, I was still effectively sporting director for for Subaru World Rally Team, and uh, uh, well, that that was uh, that was Petter's win, wasn't it? That's when he yep. that's yep. when he won. So um, it was it was quite good fun, really. Um, it was it was it was tricky, a tr- tricky year. I mean, a lot a lot to be done. Still think Petter won that on the most incredible weather call in Corsica. That year, yes. mm. crashed the car at shakedown. Everyone said, "Oh, the team, the team won it because they repaired the car." Well, they absolutely did. But what what he really won it on was the smartest weather call that I've ever managed to make. Yeah. When we went out with we went out with heavily cut slicks, in fact, heavily cut intermediate tire, whatever that was at the time, um, and uh, everyone else went out with dry tires. I remember that, George. And everyone and thought first, you were the, mad, George, didn't they? Because it was, it everyone, was and, and hot and, I said, and sunny I said, in no, service. No, well, yeah, we yeah. were we were lying fourth and fifth or something yeah. like that, and quite clearly not on the finest. And, and it was it was great. The team was great, and the drivers were great. David Lapworth, one hundred percent, back the back the shout. We were playing the numbers game. This was the chance. This, this was the this was the one in ten where it could make a difference. Anyway, that that that's another story. But uh, that call it took Petter, I think, from third or fourth. Right up to first with with a minute and a half lead, and you've no idea the work I did in the background to stop that stage being cancelled. <laughs> and, and anyway, another story. Uh, sorry, Luke, go ahead. So you didn't go to that rally. But just- I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom, a performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. So it makes you feel really sad. Imagine how wholesome that would be if we're all like, oh yeah, we're all there in our various capacities. So I feel even more guilty now about my decision. And I'm going to apologize to my parents once more for this. Because I know they probably haven't completely forgiven me for that move given how iconic the rally and, and, turned out to be. <laughs> so, I was going to say, and the, and the message for everybody out there post-COVID is Go. don't put anything off. No. Do it while you can. Yep. yep. So, yeah, I've been fortunate enough that that wasn't the end of my WRC story before it began. Um, but don't, like, don't, be like, don't be that guy. <laughs> it's like a film script now, isn't it? It is it's a little the bit. The setback for our hero. I've bigged it up. Um, so after, <laughs> after this, I spent the next... God knows how many years, still just watching the Jim Clark every year, learning so many different names, not going to WRC travel still my lot. This was a, I don't know why, I can only assume what to do with Petter being in with a chance of the championship or something, but there was never a discussion that we had or that was on the table for going to a rally GB after this. This was like, it turned out the one and only chance as a family. 
Um, so my rallying was still always every single year watching the Jim Clark, which is why I'm always a big sucker and argument for tarmac rallying, because it's what I grew up with, which is weird for somebody in the UK. Normally you're in, in the forest, but my first rally GB was 2016. So I didn't really go to very many in the end, given it stopped running after 19. And I missed one of those in those years as well. So I only ever did three of them, which for a British rally nut isn't very many. Um, so bold admissions. I might have some people hating me now, but we take it. We're going to be honest. Um, but I think my first event that wasn't a Jim Clark must have been the Border Counties Rally, which is in a similar region of the Scottish borders, but in the forest. And again, that was 2015, something like that. This is when I just passed my driving test. So it was like a bit of a trip out um, myself to take myself places I wanted to go. So I went randomly into the forest. Of course I did. Um, <laughs> and that was that. Um, but at this point, my, my rallying addiction had always been, it never sort of waned, it had always been there. But I never ever thought it could lead to a career or even anything I could be remotely involved in. And to be fair, there's a bit of a sort of sad... Who would have known? Who would have known, Luke, you could have rejected George Donaldson's phone calls whenever you fancied me. <laughs> <laughs> See, living the high life now, Joey. It is living the high life. <laughs> but there is, there is a bit of a... A sort of sad twist to this story in a way and I, i'm making it sound even more like a movie script with this but the do you guys all remember the the 2014 jim clark rally where we lost three spectators yes mm. yeah. yeah so this is obviously quite a a big deal for for many reasons but rallying community but i remember it really striking me home how big a deal this was because it was all over the main news like, this isn't something that happens to my area. You, you weren't on BBC News, you weren't on Sky, and it was all a bit surreal and tragic and just horrible, really. The, the feeling of the next few days there just wasn't just wasn't nice, you know, and it's natural in the circumstances. But in I think on the this happened on the Saturday, so on the Friday night I'd uploaded some clips of stuff to, to YouTube. So I kind of got into, when I was at school, a little bit of video creation and I wrote the odd blog posts and stuff and I, I, at the time I never thought that would mean anything if that makes sense I just sort of did it in spare time when I was had some mm -hmm. spare time or whatever um, but I'd uploaded some stuff to YouTube and I had quite a few news teams like approaching me for this footage because they wanted something obviously to show what rallying was in their news bulletins now, at this time I was 16 I think just turning 17 so to say I was naive would be strong but I didn't this is all a bit weird and new and intense for me. I didn't really know what was going on. Um, but And it sounds really, really horrible in a way, but there was something about being part of a storytelling process that I kind of enjoyed. Obviously, the process... And, Welcome to the world of journalism. Well, there you go. Obviously, in this yeah. scenario, it was horrible. There was no joy or satisfaction. My family were all excited because my name had a small credit on the news and stuff. I didn't take that because it was just... It didn't feel like it was anything to be happy about. But deep down i knew that i quite enjoyed being part of something T telling the story yeah essentially well, part of telling the story i think that's that's perhaps what 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 drives a lot of journalists as well and you the the, the fact is that even in this day and age where we have social media and everybody can contribute to the story that's happening it does help to have um some people who have made journalism their career to actually structure the stories and tell the stories and it is a very weird feeling when you're covering bad news yeah, um, or a, a massive breaking story because there's the excitement of um, time deadlines, of 
getting the right people to talk to and also doing justice to the people who've been affected by the story. Um, and that whole mixture of cocktails that goes through you, a cocktail of drugs that kind of uh, hormones that are kind of going through your, your body at the time is is very confusing sometimes when you're, when you're covering major stories. Yeah, I was obviously a few years and stuff off this at this point, but yeah, you, you can put it right, Lisa. I, I actually couldn't have put that any better myself. Just And it's it's weird now looking back at it, actually, because this was, what, nine years ago now, which makes me feel ancient um, <laughs> in my head. But it, it's... Nine years ago. Well, nine years ago, I promise. Oh, well, that's, okay. yeah, so that that's a third of my life, though. So it, for me, that's a long time. Um, anyway, I, I digress. The, this essentially provoked me to, and the timing was actually incredibly fortuitous. This was just between fifth and sixth year of the Scottish system. So I had basically that summer to try and work out what I wanted to do with my life and, and use the last year of school to tailor things and everything like that. Um, so I started looking at all the uni syllabuses and everything. And originally it was like photography and all this sort of stuff, but I, journalism intrigued me. So I went for it. I managed to just about scrape the grades that I needed. And then I packed the bags up to Edinburgh in the autumn of 2015. Um, and that was me, away up to uni. And at this point, this is when I really realised that rallying was quite niche for some people. <laughs> I had an idea anyway, but at school, obviously everyone was from the area, so you all knew about it. A lot of my friends at uni still now don't really know what it is that I do, despite my best efforts. But I need to somehow organised day where we actually go to an event. Yeah. So I think that's the key with, with be, rallies. You need to you be need a to better see journalist, Luke. <laughs> Touché, well, we do live in a country where most people think rallying is just when Colin McRae and Robert um, Richard Burns rule the world yeah I think we have certainly yeah particularly in the UK we've not got the same currency that we used to definitely um, so where was I 15 yeah so I went up to uni and I was doing the class thing you do at uni the first half of the year probably wasn't so much concentrating on the study more on the other life experience you can have around being at university <laughs> but the less said about that the better really in a podcast <laughs> and I was searching for sort of work opportunities I had been contributing to just a really small magazine just on the side and stuff just to sort of get some practice and the guy actually he called Joey he ran a magazine called Faster Scotland he was mega because he had no right to take me on really as anything he needed some extra help but I was a 17 year old school student at that time you know, I had no credentials or anything. So yeah, I essentially launched my career in a way because I ended up getting, well, he knew somebody from the Scottish Championship very well and that ended up setting wheels in motion to allow me to be the SRC's press officer for 2016, which lasted until 2020, actually. So really not that long ago. Um, but this was my first, like, technically paid proper experience of working in a rallying role professionally, which was mental. And I'd be lying if I told you I was particularly comfortable in that first event, the Snowbird Rally in February. <laughs> I was very out of my depth, very shy. I still am very shy, actually, which isn't the best trait for a journalist, but I take a while to warm up, maybe more than others. But yeah, that, that was the start of something, I guess, that led me to here. From there, it was... And I always knew that PR wasn't what I really wanted to do, but this was a great step to be involved in something rallying related and stuff so it was an amazing experience but from here i applied for the autosport magazine academy which no longer exists but at the time it was like <clears throat> excuse me the place to be if you're an aspiring motorsport journalist and i guess there's, there's names like scott mitchell malm now the f1 journalist i think he's like the, the figurehead of the program he's done incredibly well 
So there was all these people that I thought, right, this is clearly where I need to be. Um, so I managed to get myself in there and I was part of that program for a couple of years while at uni, sort of learning various things. I then got a job just as COVID hit with Motorsport News. Um, so again, at that point, if for anybody who doesn't know what Motorsport News is, in, in the UK, it's it's been for generations, I guess, like rallying royalty in terms of news. Everybody would get it. I guess sadly nowadays it isn't quite as prevalent as it used to be given the way that online works compared to the newspaper but for me that was another massive box ticked um about at that point obviously it started 2020 this little thing called dirtfish media was, about, <laughs> was appearing on the horizon um and at the time i always say to people i've been involved with dirtfish since the start and i have but at the start i was barely involved in this project at all because i had a full-time job somewhere else i was literally employed for weekends to, to cover wrc rallies writing stage reports that was my job monday i was gone back to my little desk um motorsport news wise but having that foot in the door obviously has turned out to be quite key because in 21 i was offered a full-time position here which i jumped at and here we are now sitting on a podcast rabbiting on about myself for far too long it feels a little bit uncomfortable but that i guess is my rallying story bitten by the bug early um and never really let go to be fair it's fascinating. It's fascinating, Luke, when you when you do actually um, tell us a story. I, f- I forget how young you are <laughs> and how old we are. And a bit, a bit like uh, it, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, I wanted to give you a round of applause there, Luke. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For, thank you for sharing. He, he also thank you for sharing he your failed story. to mention. That, I was going to say he's, forgot, he's failed to mention there, of course, that he kind of glossed over the fact they're also um, picking up a prestigious journalistic award as well, Luke and already editor on you know dirtfish.com which is 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 some some achievement and down to your enthusiasm and skill as well um they do say if you can find a job you love you'll never work a day in your life which and i know how long your hours are at times and how much time you put in luke would you say that you have your dream job at the moment i think i'd be silly to say i don't yet but you're right i think sometimes it takes the bad days you need to remember, right, okay, it could be a lot worse. Like, so ironically, I actually live opposite a Tesco that I used to work at as a student, but it's a, a bit of a holy place in my household because it's where me and my partner actually met. So, but it's very weird Aww. that we now live across the road from it. But if I'm ever having a bad day, I look over and I think, yeah, do you know what? <laughs> it could be worse. <laughs> I didn't enjoy that as much. Um, so, yeah, it, they are long hours. Of course they are. But as you say, it's not, for this to be paying me money, is ridiculous for me to write about rally cars and for that to get me by is is crazy and um, so i'm a very lucky boy we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use indeed the better it gets and Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm going to jump in very quickly and tell my story and then Colin you can pick up off that because you kind of naturally come off the back of of part of of what I did. So 2003, I was already a sports journalist at that point. I'd mostly been a news journalist in the UK 
uh, reading the news on national radio and um, also for a radio station called Classic FM. But I didn't speak slowly enough to read the news on Classic FM effectively. You have to talk very slowly and calmly. <laughs> and that doesn't work very well for me. But So anyway, um, I had decided that I wanted to make the switch from news to sport. I was always playing sport. I played rugby to quite a high level. I was playing tennis um, and watching sport everywhere I possibly could. And decided that I was going to go to Australia and watch the Lions tour in 2001. So I made a career change from news to sport at the turn of the century. Let's just make it sound really old. Um, and as a result, started freelancing. And the very excellent legend of the sport, Greg Strange, um, was somebody that I had dealings with in my capacity in the national news agency that I'd been working at. And he said, you must come down and, and do some do some work on rallying. And I thought, well, my experience for rallying was watching the BBC coverage of the RAC rally, which we would all sit and watch. Cars, headlights, lots of darkness. But I didn't really always have a clue what was happening. And let's face it, the TV pictures were exciting, but it gener- they generally only ever seemed to be showing headlights because it was very dark and you'd see the cars coming, but it wasn't, it was all right. It wasn't great. Um, from a household point of view, uh, my dad, who is currently tucked up in bed with a cup of tea, um, he's 91, my dad, and he um, is an Irish dentist who had an absolute passion for cars when he came to the UK in the late 1950s. And in the early 1960s, he decided to build his own racing car so he built a car called a Rejo, which basically was like a kit car. Uh, and he used to race that. And um, apparently it was as quick on the corners as it was on the straight. So if anybody went past him on the straight, he didn't worry too much about it because he could just take them on the bends. And um, absolutely loved that. And then when he met my mum, well, not when he met my mum, because they were going out together for eight years before they actually tied the knot, he decided that he had to make a decision between racing and being a married man because he couldn't afford the insurance um, to to drive cars. But cars have always been a massive part of our family. My brother's built a couple of cars. We've got a restored MGB in the garage that my dad and my brother rebuilt together. And I was kind of loitering around learning how to um, change oil and, uh, you know, change spark plugs and whatever, just getting in the way effectively. So when Greg invited me to come and cover the... Wales Rally GB in 2003. I thought, yeah, okay, I can do that. So I put on a really nice pair of boots, um, my really smart coat, because I thought I've got to look smart. And then he sent me to go and stand at a stage end that was very, very muddy and very, very wet. And he said, right, yes, can you you speak to all these British drivers that we've got coming through and um, just take notes? So I had a notebook (laughs) and a pen and... I had a, that whole moment where I just thought, what have I agreed to? All these people look at me thinking, why is she wearing that coat? She looks ridiculous. My feet were nice and warm, but th- those boots are ruined. Um, and I think about the third car in, I just thought, this is unbelievable. And then I spoke to Petter Solberg, who was leading the rally. And he was answering my questions and he was fantastic. And I just thought, I've just spoken to this guy who is going to be world champion and and I could go and talk to him again if I want to or I could talk to that guy I can I've got so much access to the people 
that are at the top of this sport and they're giving me time and they're not treating me like an idiot or an outsider. They're making me feel very much part. And oh my God, this stuff is so exciting. Look at the pictures that I'm now seeing because we could watch the, and in those days in the service park, they would replay that the, the World Feed program would be played out on a big screen or it'd be played out somewhere where you could actually watch what had happened across the day. And it was just, it was love at first sight. It genuinely was love at first sight. Um, and I was only down for, I was down for the three days. And at the end of that, I just thought, well, I need more of this. I need to do more of this. And there wasn't really a budget. The radio was in its infancy and there was a lot of development happening with, with the radio side of things. Mm -hmm. And the, the budget wasn't entirely there. But I did get to go to Monte Carlo and then I went to Sweden we went to Turkey, I did Greece, and then and then the world turned and Colin Clark appeared on the scene. <laughs> and you came in as I understood it. So so I then had to kind of take a, a backward step from actually being stage end reporter. I did come in later um, back on the production side of things and um, in the from 2014 or 15 onwards, I was effectively producer of the radio station as well. So I was able to do that, but based back in the UK, um, keeping the radio station online at that point. And, and it has been, you know, it's been a, a love affair. It's very difficult as well when you have been involved at the coalface to step away and follow from afar. Because, and I know drivers feel this way, co-drivers who, who perhaps have lost a seat, it's very difficult to watch other people carrying on when you're not part of it anymore as well. That's that's very difficult. Difficult is the word. But mm. um, but the, this is the way the world turns. So Colin, you effectively then came in and took over the stage end reporting and turned it into an art form. <laughs> that's very kind of you, Lisa. I'm not sure I did turn it into a, an art form, but I certainly enjoyed it. And very similar to you, you know, I, I agreed. I mean, obviously I'd laid it down. I'd kind of yeah, given you the well, way to do it properly, you know. I'd agreed to, to uh, well, Greg and I were doing each other a favour in, uh, where were we now? We were in Cyprus, 2005. I was borrowing some of his kit and in return, I was you know, going to do this stage end reporting, whatever that entailed at the time, I had absolutely no idea. Uh, and like you, you know, I turned up and, and had a moment of absolute panic before the first car turned up. I'd taken my brother along with me who'd done a little bit of radio and said, if I can't do this, you're doing it. Uh, but two or three cars in was absolutely hooked on it. On, on the hello, Simon. We love the, you. We do love Simon. <laughs> hooked on the whole thing. But but the, but you know, that was down to you, George Donaldson. Uh, but the story actually, my story starts a little bit before that. I'll, I'll be quite brief because um, Luke, being the youngest, decided he wanted the most time. Would you believe we had half an hour of Luke? I wasn't Oops. timing That's Oops. quite all right. Luke. Sorry, it was a lovely story. We enjoyed listening to it. Uh, so my my story started in two thousand and one. It was December two thousand and one. Uh, I've told it before, I've written the story before, but I will tell it again as briefly as I can. Uh, December 2001, um, things, I, I worked for a very large tobacco company and in the UK I was looking after promotions and brand sponsorship and things like that. Um, and uh, we owned our own Formula One team, British American Racing, which at the time was doing appallingly badly. Um, and we'd spent uh, a, a vast, a vast amount of money to achieve nothing in three years. And the guy who was in charge of the marketing budget, very, very scary Eastern European gentleman, decided that he wanted David Richards to run his team. So he went and made David Richards a very generous offer, I'm sure, to run the Formula One team, which David Richards accepted. And you know, history will show it was a great move. You know, David did a great job 
in charge of BAR. Um, but uh, just before Christmas 2001, uh, this chap, the marketing director and David were having dinner and David raised the prospect of one of British American Tobacco's biggest rivals sponsoring David's little rally team. Um, and how silly and how strange that might look if he's running a Formula One team for one tobacco company and another tobacco company is sponsoring their rally team. So this gentleman who had money coming out of his ears effectively to spend said, well, how much do you want? I will sponsor your rally team. Um, so that's how the deal was done over dinner. And that's how 555 effectively came back into the world of rallying in 2002. Money. And I got the phone call literally on the Monday morning saying, uh, we're doing this. We're launching in Monte Carlo. We want an internal launch before Christmas. Uh, and I thought, what is this sport? I'm 31 years old. I'd watched a little bit of Saturday lunchtime rallying. I'd, I'd heard of the Hanu Mikulas and Ari Vaknins of this world, Colin McRae's, obviously, but I knew nothing about it. Uh, and all of a sudden, I'm plunged in at the deep end looking after 555. And thank goodness for people like George Donaldson, because, you know, that was when I first met George. And George basically held, held my hand through a lot of that process and introduced me to a lot of a lot of what rallying was all about. But my, my first ever rally experience was just, was just quite, uh, it was just very, it was odd. It was bizarre. You know, I, I went to the Monte Carlo rally, you know, four weeks or three and a half weeks after that dinner where they'd, you know, agreed on the sponsorship deal, this three-year sponsorship deal. Um, ended up staying at the Hotel Hermitage, which is, you know, when you're, you're used to staying in travel lodges, the <laughs> was like someone saying, "Come and stay at Buckingham Palace for the night." It was, it was, it was, it was quite <laughs> incredible. Uh, and the next morning, I get up and I go down to Service Park, and David Richards is there. And, um, they're making me feel rather important, which I found all very uncomfortable. Uh, and David said, "There's a seat in my helicopter. Would you like to go up and watch some of the stages from my helicopter?" And I thought, well, "This could be quite good fun. Never been in a helicopter in my life. Get into this helicopter and promptly feel terror like I've never felt in my life." <laughs> and I'm, I'm calmed by this beautiful, soft, lilting little Irish voice next to me saying, you know, a little old wizened man with grey hair saying, this is the first time in a helicopter, yeah, well, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, I'll look after you. It's not as bad as it appears. So off we went in this helicopter. You do the accent. Great accent. <laughs> off we go in this helicopter and, we're, and this, this gentleman's asking me questions and I, you know, put my hand up and said, I'm a rally virgin, it's my first time on the stages. Uh, and, and, and he starts telling me all about rallying and he talks to me about Monte Carlo. He talks to me about where we're landing and how, what to look out for in the cars. And I said, uh, I said, you seem to know an awful lot about the sport. And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, I, I won this sport. I won this rally a few years ago. <laughs> and it turns out it was Paddy Hopkirk. So, so oh my God. it was Paddy Hopkirk. So I spent an afternoon, a glorious afternoon learning about rallying, um, jumping between stages. And we did have a whole afternoon. It wasn't just a, you know, an hour in the helicopter, a whole afternoon with this helicopter, more or less to ourselves bombing around the stages of Monte Carlo watching rallying. And that, and that's, that was my, my introduction to it. Um, in terms of the, where, where we, we then jumped forward to 2005, Lisa, to what you're talking about. And uh, I'd left the tobacco company, um, missed rallying like mad, and thought, what can I do to get back involved in, in rallying? Being on the outside is awful. Well, you know, I, I'd never been completely on the inside, but it was something that I really enjoyed. You know, and I, I had a bit of time on my hands because the tobacco company had paid me a small fortune to leave. <laughs> Just <laughs> one of the benefits of working for a tobacco company. They were very, very generous. Um, and I'd set up a website uh, called ringtones.com, uh, selling motorsport ringtones, because ringtones were huge in those days. And I needed to record some rally cars. And again, George said, well, you know, Greg Strange will be in Cyprus. Um, he'll have the equipment. You can go and record some, 
some sounds there. And I thought, yeah. And George was the intermediary, and he came back and said, look, you know, Greg needs you to do these these you know a few little interviews, and and that's that's where we started. That was that was the terror at the end of that first stage. And for me, it was the same. It was you know it was it was Toshi Arai coming in on three wheels. It was Perez Solberg. It was Sebastian Loeb. All these greats who had you know I'd had a couple of years, a year and a half you know, working within the Subaru World Rally team. So I knew one or two of the characters, um, but I'd never, I'd never spoken to the likes of Loeb and, and the others. And it was just totally intoxicating. And it, it went from there. And that's, you know, that was now uh, over 20 years ago that I got involved from a marketing mm-hmm. side of things. Um, and what, 18 years ago now from the, the radio side of things? Yeah, it was great. It was great. No, no journalistic experience. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't base my, as you could probably tell, Lisa, and, and I based I based what I did on on just you know being as honest as I could, uh, you know enjoying you know because I was I think it's always been as well, Colin, which is which is what both you and I have always tried to do, and George has always also picked up and done brilliantly. Radio is about painting pictures with words, pictures. and yeah. the people who are back home want to know what it's like to be where well, you that's are it. while they carry on with their daily life, and if you can just use a few words to. You know, well, I mean, I just remember you describing the various beasts that you thought were going to attack you at the stage end. And and George, with you, it's the tentacles of perception. You know, it's just it's phrases and stuff that have gone down in rally folklore because radio and podcasts can do something that other media don't. People, crappy telly is is telling you don't have to watch because someone is telling you everything. But radio yeah, will take you there. Totally. And, and you know, that's what I tried to do. It was, you know, I, I knew I was privileged. And I still know I'm privileged to do what I do. Um, and, and you know what? It was great because we had listeners literally all around the world. Uh, you know, if it's, it's early morning, there's sleepy dust in your eyes. You're feeling absolutely exhausted. But there were people who were up for their Friday nights, their Saturday nights, and they were listening and they wanted you to just take them along on the journey and, and, and that's what we did and that's what we tried to do and, and you know talking about radio I think I think that's another idea for another podcast at some point just to talk about where we're at with radio and, and rallying these days because we we kind of pioneered it you know and just as radio yeah. just as podcasts were becoming super super popular someone makes a decision that it's not for rallying you know perhaps the most radio friendly sport there is around certainly in terms of yep. motorsport in terms of yeah. motorsport someone decides that radio isn't right for rallying. When radio, audio, podcasts are just, there's an explosion of interest in them because you know, because it fits in with modern life, doesn't it? You know, and that's what we did. People would go shopping and they would listen to rally radio. They'd be babysitting the kids uh, and they'd be listening to rally radio. They'd be at work, you know, in the boardroom and they'd be listening to sneakily rally radio. And, and you, could, you could go about your everyday life and stay in touch with rallying. Um, and um, that was so, so important. And it's something that I think, you know, it's a shame for me. I, I, I think it's a real shame that we were, we were at the forefront, you know, in terms of podcasts, in terms of sports coverage, in terms of uh, your technology to broadcast from these, these stage ends at any locations around the world. And then it all just disappeared. All just went because yeah. something else was bigger, supposedly, and better, supposedly. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. 
Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Um, such a shame. And also pay to view. There's a big one, Colin. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's it. The pay. The paywall, I think, is is yeah. not great when you're trying to promote a niche sport. So, George, um, yeah. you've you've had a massive influence on all of us as well. Um, but tell us your story. Um, well, I've got eight minutes left. Seven minutes before I've got my first work call this morning, so it's going to be quick. <laughs> that's easy. Um, for, we, we, my my we first steps basics, in motorsport. But, my yeah. first steps in motorsport. I think that we've shared with many of our viewers many times. Maybe what's more interesting is is what I'm doing now in motorsport because I've gone back to club rally stuff, club club events. And yesterday I was at an auto test with my daughter who was doing her second ever auto test, doing very nicely, getting very frustrated ah, with herself. Can I can I point out the second auto test post and 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 her first her post first her dirt fished dirt, uh, dirt fish experience, yeah. training experience? Yeah, she's, so she's now fully trained. So she was, I think she was expecting more than she got. But what was really interesting, Good. And, and this is this is what I really think we should be talking about now, is is the fact that there were, I think there were five junior drivers there and five that had never been there before. I think it was their first ever event. And this is a little auto test. So it's an all forwards auto test. This is like a miniature special stage. I don't know how long they are. It's about a minute for the, for the top drivers. It's about a minute of driving. And it is just like a small special stage. It's an old airfield. The surface is gravelly uh, or, or slippery. Uh, um, we had wet and dry throughout the day. So we had ice-like conditions and then very, very sticky tar on one of the sections for another one. But it's a great introduction to any form of car-based motorsport, even if you were going racing. At 14 years old, you can come along and compete with an adult in the car. And uh, I sat in with one of the young lads who was in with his dad, and uh, um, uh, it's quite hard to go in with your parent, I think, especially if 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 the parent's a bit obsessive about it. So I, I went in with a yeah, run with the, the young lad, and I took him <laughs> because I was I was I was I was trying to win the damned auto test. I failed miserably, but I took uh, I took that young lad on for three runs in my car, so he could see me driving, um, and see how the auto test was done, which helped him massively in his little driving as well. So those are the things you can do. And, and I mean, you know, just, just to make it plain how simple that is, and I would love to get the message out. I don't know how, I know that Motorsport UK do try to get the message out. And I think as a sport, we fail miserably. Anyone can come along, join a car club. That's 10 or 12 quid. You apply for an RSR license, a competition license, because they like to keep some control on it. But that is free. So you just apply for it online. You can actually get a, a, a card license if you want, but you, you pay £19 for that. The entry fee for the event is £35. So um, your first ev- your first event might cost you £45, plus what you tear out of your car doing an all-forwards auto test. But you could use any car for it. It helps if you've got a handbrake, but you don't need one. It, it's, it's set up, so you don't need a handbrake, but it's quicker if you have. But uh, what a great way to start motorsport. And I can tell you, and, and this is true across the states as well. I know the Americans yeah. have something very well, similar across the states. Don't the they? Americans have have a, a, a much better in the in the US. I think they have a much better grassroots arrangement than we have. They're much more open. You know, the the the, the rally cross event just last month that was held at Dirtfish was at two hundred and odd entries they had, and if you could you could have a car with no roll cage, you you always had to wear a helmet on that. Um, you don't even have to wear a helmet on on the British auto test because it's it's low speed and, and you know relatively low speed anyway just on these little circuits. Um, 
Uh, but but in in America they've got these fantastic multi-tiered, multi-layered events with lots of different classes and lots of different cars. Build anything, bring it along. Yeah, pass a scrutineering away you go. You know they do the proper safety checks to make sure everything's safe and that nobody's going to get hurt. But um, just absolutely brilliant. So it is actually really easy to do an event. And and look, I mean you spent half an hour telling us uh, how you were introduced to motorsport, but and, and we know you did the Jim Clark, which is a massive event, but come along and do an auto test. And I think you should. Yeah, you, you, There's plenty in the borders as well. You've been badging the economy this for a while, haven't you? As well. Yeah, they, they are absolutely fantastic events. And, uh, well, perhaps you can record as well, and we could we could um, pin that out as a podcast, a little self uh, I'm podcast sure we special. Do that. There, there we are. There we are, Luke. We could do that, uh, record a podcast. Anyway, they are fabulous fun, very competitive, but just everyone's helping each other, everyone's it's, looking it's after George. each other. It's beautiful. It is absolutely, absolutely the way to get kids into rallying. You know, it's 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 safe yep. or as safe as safe can be. And you know, let's face it, no sports are safe. No sports are hundred percent safe. You know, my kids play a lot of hockey and it scares the hell out of me watching them playing hockey these days. Um, you know, but but that's as safe as it can be. It's affordable. It's fun. It's inclusive. Yes. Everyone can get involved. Uh, you're making them better drivers as well. well of course you yeah. are. Of course you are, Lisa. And if they don't Absolutely. go into motorsport, and, and which which probably a lot of them won't, you know, they will be better prepared for their driving lives. Um, and you know what? Here, I'm, I'm just going to make a very quick point here, and it's bugging the hell out of me. Um, you know, a lot of you will know that I have, have quite a lot of interest in Australia and Australian rallying. Uh, and you're the equivalent of Motorsport UK, Motorsport Australia. You know, on the back of uh, some fairly nasty accidents in Targa, I've come up with some recommendations which will probably kill tarmac rallying. And it's such a shame because, you know, you talk to anyone and they'll tell you that the future could well be tarmac rallying because it's so much cheaper than stage your gravel rallying. It's cheaper in terms of repairing the roads. It's cheaper in terms of the wear and tear on the cars. It's, it's a lot easier to organise in terms of marshals. Um, and in Australia, they've just come up with a, a set of rules which probably effectively means the death of tarmac rallying. And it's such a shame. You get the head of Motorsport Australia saying that tarmac rallying is already dead, which is nonsense. Absolute nonsense. And it annoys me because quite clearly, your tarmac rallying and tarmac stuff like you're talking about, George, you know, is, yep. is really what we do. You know, all of us who are would like to be rally drivers, but we'll never be rally drivers. We'll never do rallies. We, we, every single day, we take our cars out on tarmac roads and we face the challenges of tarmac roads. And anything that we do as youngsters in, in terms of, you know, as you say, auto test, George, rally crosses like they do in the States, you know, anything like that prepares us and makes us better, better equipped to deal with the challenges. And I think it's so, so sad that there are governing bodies out there who don't see that and don't realise that and don't want to support that. Yep. It's such a shame. Guys, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to go. I apologise for interrupting, Colin. Uh, right. I've got to, I've I've got got to, to dash go well. off and, and uh, keep, the, keep the, uh, the, the wheels of industry oiled, literally. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the, um, my, my synopsis on uh, the, the driving mistakes, Ooh. shall we call them, and the, the most fabulous uh, comments on some drivers I've got as well, We'll have to wait till next week if, if we're still interested in doing we'll get that those. next week. We will get those, George. So and we've got such a long time, George. Now. Such a long time till Greece that, that, you know, that's perfect. I think we go back and we have, look, we have a look perfect. at um, what caused those yeah. incidents. I, I can say that anyone, any any big Ott fans will love what I've got to say 
from Ott from his <laughs> well, very he short tease. Finland. He made, he, mistake, teases. he made a mistake. He made a Colin, Colin, wait until you hear my I've got to dash. Love Thanks, to hear George. all the stories. Thank you, guys. Bye. Well, Thanks, George. Uh, the very excellent George Donaldson. Um, <laughs> off to literally, as he says, literally oil the the wheels of industry. So we we are kind of um, almost out of time. Colin, do you want to to continue what you the point you were making there? No, not at all. No, I'd, I'd come to the end of it. I just I just think that you know what George was saying about auto tests naturally progressing into tarmac rallies is is something that we should be encouraging. Um, and and in the UK we seem to struggle badly. You know, you look at the entry list for the up and coming round of the British Rally Championship. There are six entries in it, six entries in the BRC for the next round. Um, I mean, wow, it's, it's desperate. It's absolutely. De- correct me if I'm wrong there, Luke, but last I read, it was six entries. Um, no, you're correct. Yeah, it's six. You know, um, uh, uh, I definitely think this is a, worth a podcast in its well, own right yeah. because I, I do think that a lot of people who are inside the tents at the moment involved don't realise that the sport needs um, it needs something else to, to grow again because I was only half joking when I said that in the UK you mentioned World Rally Championship and people will say Colin McRae and that was two decades ago. Yeah. You know, we're heading into a third decade ago. Um, it It's something something needs to change if the sport is going to continue and, and it is so massively overshadowed by Formula One and other motorsport that it shouldn't be because it's the best. The, be- the yeah. best and the most relevant. Um, yes, well, I know you, you've got to go too, I Colin. Do. So I think we'll, we'll wrap things up um, for this edition of Spin the Rally Pod. Um, let us know your first rally experiences. Tell us how you got involved in rallying. Get in touch at Dirtfish Rally and um, we'll, we'll go through those, I think, perhaps next time as well. And we'll talk about... Um, what rally does have to offer for the future potentially luke barry thank you very much for your story and no you weren't rambling on it was very interesting <laughs> so uh, i did feel like a ramble. even though Cl- colin had the clock going it was it was 30 <laughs> minutes of interesting stuff just um, just to add as well you may be getting to so apologies i'm going to talk over you but obviously there is a very good way to get a good experience of rallying if you haven't already or if in fact you are a pro and you want to touch up on your skills Dirtfish Rally School in Stokalmy in the northwest of America where the 2024 dates for the calendar have just gone live last week as well so there's still plenty of time to get your spot and experience a little bit of rally driving yourself in a professional environment yeah absolutely and um, if you fancy a all-female experience as well there are all women weekends which are just brilliant fun as well absolutely fantastic place to go and if you are a rally fan and Twin Peaks fan you can have both at the same time Um, dirtfish.com is the place to go for all your rally needs thank you for listening to the podcast we'll be back next week (laughs) 